Good morning, everyone. I'm Mel. And I'm Pippa. We're the creators and editors of Earthrise, the podcast and platform that focuses on the connection between human rights and environmental issues. Just a quick message before we begin. The views and research presented on this podcast are either our own or referenced on our website, www.earthrights.co.uk. We generally always record a few weeks ahead of release, so some facts or situations may have changed during this time. We at Earthrights want to tell you about the fashion industry and why we as individuals hold the power to change. As Lily Cole states, realise the political power of your money and spend it with the brands you know are treating their workers and the environment in the best possible way. After all, money is the most basic form of democracy. So let's start unpacking what fast fashion really is. So, what is fast fashion? The term was first coined by the New York Times in 1989 when it was referring to Zara, which had flaunted its 15-day turnaround from the design concept to its realisation in the Zara stores. The term fast fashion also refers to the shift in the fashion industry that has resulted in faster production with seriously low costs. This fast fashion model is based on knocking off high-end styles from fashion shows and delivering them in a short time at cheap prices. The fast turnaround and the cheap price are attractive notions to consumers who want celebrity styles in their wardrobes, yet this race to the bottom has forced brands to source cheaper materials, non-natural fibres and cheaper labour in already very poor parts of the world. Let's take a look at where it all started. So the high street as a concept began in around 1870 when markets started to become shops as a result of urbanisation. The cycle of fashion soon picked up during the Industrial Revolution with new textile machines and factory-made clothing and clothing being able to be made in bulk. In the early 1900s, imperialism and colonialism enabled Britain to access goods and cheap labour from the colonies it had invaded. And in the 1960s, this is when trends started to move at a dizzying speed. Young people embraced cheaply made clothing to follow trends and fashion brands had to keep up with the increasing demand. This led to massive textile mills opening across the developing world, allowing American and European companies to save millions of pounds by outsourcing their labour. In recent years, there's been a growth in brands like Topshop, Zara, Primark, H&M, Forever 21. And in more recent years, we've seen the growth of e-retailers like Boohoo, Pretty Little Thing, Nasty Gal and Shein. Consequently, the average number of collections released by European shops has risen from two in 2000 to five in 2011, with Zara now offering 24 new collections per year. This leads to a view that cheap clothing items are disposable and can be thrown away after being worn just a handful of times. In 2000, 50 billion new garments were made. 20 years later, that figure has doubled. According to the European Parliament, the amount of clothes bought in the EU per person has increased by 40% in just a few decades. Fast fashion relies on recurring consumption and impulse buying, instilling a sense of urgency when purchasing. Hence, it is now a $2.5 trillion industry. So, first, we're going to be taking a look at the environmental impact of fast fashion. Pippa, over to you. So the fast fashion industry produces 10% of global CO2 emissions. 
So when you think about that, that's huge, 10% of global emissions. From the production of the clothes to shipping to the energy used to wash and dry your clothes at home. So one of the main problems is with this kind of urgency we have around buying things with the promise of next day delivery. Um, and, you know, we have Amazon Prime, Topshop free returns, all of these amazing things that allow us to purchase clothes before the money even comes out of our bank accounts. But often the reason that this is possible is because of cheap shipping. So the clothes will be produced in somewhere like Bangladesh and then shipped in, in boats to the UK or flown on planes to the UK. And the reason that this cheap shipping is possible is because the ships are using cheap but dirty and polluting fuels, polluting the oceans, the air and releasing vast amounts of CO2 emissions. Once the clothing then arrives in the UK, it's shipped to your door in what is very likely a diesel polluting van. Diesel is one of the most nasty fuels compared to petrol and obviously way worse than electric vehicles because it releases particulate matter pollution, which is one of the most dangerous air pollutants um, to human health and also like very harmful to the environment and to nature. And when you really think about it, how can a piece of clothing that we purchase at 7pm on a Friday night be with us by 9am on Saturday morning? It's just mind-blowing. So there may be less trips to the shops as we're sitting in bed ordering our clothes from our laptop, but the process of getting the clothes from the country they were made to the factory where they're shipped to our doorsteps, it's not done by magic. And the consequence of this is on the environment. And as we've moved towards more fast fashion trends, clothes have notoriously been kind of made not to last. That's the whole purpose of the design model is that you get a cheap piece of clothing that lasts a couple of times before the quality has declined, it's gone bubbly or there's a hole in it, meaning you have to repurchase and repurchase. And often these materials are man-made materials such as polyester. Polyester is made from fossil fuels and is a non-biodegradable material. It accounted for 16% of fibres that were used in clothes last year. So you make polyester from a plastic-derived PET, which is made from crude oil, um, the same material that's used to make water bottles or tomato ketchup bottles. This is problematic because not only does the material itself rely on fossil fuels, but the plastic that it's made from also leaks tiny, minuscule microfibers into the environment. But I'll come back to that later. So if we go back to thinking about the life cycle of a pair of jeans that turn up on our doorstep. So a typical pair of jeans will begin their life in China or India, where cotton seeds are sown, irrigated and grown. Self-driving machines then carefully harvest the cotton puffs and an industrial cotton machine mechanically separates the flife from the seeds. But these cotton plants require huge quantities of water and pesticides. Around 1,800 gallons of water is needed for just one pair of blue jeans. To put that into perspective, that's enough to fill 84 baths. Once the cotton leaves the farm as a material, it's then shipped to a spinning facility. Then the workers will dye the material, where it then is travelled to factories often in Bangladesh, where it's stitched up and into the final product. These jeans then travel by ship, train, truck, plane, to be sold in other countries. And then you have the jeans, you enjoy the jeans, all for the mere price of, say, 10.99. Understanding the lengthy process and the precious resources that it takes to produce this single pair of jeans, it starts to make you think, 
how can it cost £10 or £5.99 in the Zara sale? £2 for a cotton t-shirt that's using thousands of gallons of water when there are people in the, on the planet that don't have access to clean drinking water or proper sanitation. And also, you wouldn't be able to buy the, that much water for such a little price anyway. Yeah. Your water bill would be far higher. Or so. Exactly. Um, so as I talked about, the production of cotton is highly, highly water intensive. So in India, to put this into perspective, 21% of the country's diseases are water related. And only 33% of the, of the country has access to, to proper sanitation. And if you think in the midst of a coronavirus pandemic, with 77% of the country not having access to proper sanitation, this is huge. This is an awful issue. But yet... 85% of the daily needs of the entire population of India could be covered by the water used to grow cotton. And this is already having a vivid impact on the environment. So you may have watched um, Stacey Dooley's documentary about fast fashion on BBC, where she showed quite shocking images of um, the Aral Sea. So the Aral Sea is in the southern part of Kazakhstan and northern Uzbekistan. And in 2014, NASA satellite images showed that it had completely empty. The, the fourth largest lake in the world was dry. So what? this, yeah, it's completely awful. So once home to 24 species of fish, forests, wetlands, this lake was just completely empty, as well as being a huge source of water to the people that live in the area. And guess what? The main culprit of that was the fashion industry, based on the fact that the, the most common grown crop in the area was cotton. That is, that's really shocking. I, I can't believe that the fourth biggest lake on earth it has been depleted. It's important that, um, and really the work of NASA and the satellite imagery technology is, is really good for sh highlighting and showing up these devastating environmental issues because to, it's hard to gauge those from um, ground level. So mm -hmm. that's, that's really important that they could show that. Definitely. And it is just so shocking to think, you know, like a, a water resource to so many people and so many plants and animals and environments and ecosystems is completely depleted because of the, because of the use of cotton. Um, and when you start to understand that we're also facing, you know, a global water crisis, this is particularly scary. Now, in 2018, the UN estimated that nearly six billion people will suffer from water scarcity by 2015. This is due to increasing demand for water, reduction of water resources, pollution of water and climate change. 844 million people currently lack basic drinking water more than one of every 10 people on the planet. Within 20 years, England even risks running out of water, which might be pretty hard to imagine when you think of all the rain that happens here. <laughs> I think it's hard to imagine as well because we're so used to turning the tap on and water coming out. It's, it's not something we have to think about, really. Um, no, like this kind of water crisis that we're facing already and is inevitably going to get worse doesn't need to exist like a huge problem of that is wastewater water just being lost this is kind of a problem that doesn't need to be as bad as it is another environmental impact of the fast fashion industry is with the toxic chemicals from all the dyes um, and the products that are used to turn the cotton or the material into a piece of clothing 
So it's estimated that nearly 2,000 chemicals are used in the production of a piece of clothing, of which the EU has classified 165 of these to be completely hazardous to the health of humans or the environment. So during fibre production, you have dyeing, bleaching, the wet processing of each of our garments, and for all of these processes, chemicals are used. According to the World Bank, roughly 17 to 20% of all industrial water pollution is due to the treatment of garments. For example, conventional cotton accounts for 25% of the, in the pesticides used worldwide. Residue from these poisons is then transferred to the soil, to the water, to the animals and to humans. These chemicals are also being directly pumped into the world's rivers. The dumping of toxic chemicals, um, mainly for dyeing, is having a disastrous impact on large parts of the rivers, most notably the Sitarum River in Indonesia and the Pearl River in China, which have now become almost completely uninhabitable for fish and other animals. The Sitarum River in Indonesia, for example, has approximately 2,000 factories, around half of which produce the fabric which will end up on the British High Street, lining the banks of the river. So this is the likes of H&M, Forever 21, all these brands we know so well. The 2,000 factories lining this river which people use for fishing, for water, for cleaning, for bathing, and it's an essential life source to the nature around. Um, but these factories pump out an estimated 340,000 tonnes of toxic wastewater daily. That's outrageous. For these people that for, for generations have lived alongside this river as an essential life source and it's now become, you know, there's no longer fish. There's an, like the fishermen have lost their livelihoods and the children are becoming like disease, are having diseases. There's higher rates of cancer in these areas um, to just think that these million dollar companies are knowingly pumping this toxic wastewater into the rivers when it, they could find ways to properly um, properly remove the waste and deal with it in a better way. And if we link that back to what I was saying earlier, we're in a water crisis. So polluting one of the in Indonesia's main rivers is just not, you know, this is going to further contribute to um, the water resources that people use for drinking. And yet another environmental impact of fast fashion production is microplastics. It's estimated that 35% of all microplastics in the ocean come from washing of synthetic fabrics like polyester, which, as I said earlier, is made from crude oil. We release uh, half a million tons of synthetic microfibers into the ocean annually. And these fibers are tiny, tiny, like a millimeter of a millimeter small. And they're washed every time we wear our clothes, every time we wash our clothes, every time we dry our clothes, and when these clothes are being produced in the first place. Microfibers have been found in the most remote corners of the planet. Um, a study um, published just earlier this week found microplastics even in human organs, because obviously if the fish and the, um, are ingesting these microfibers, then so are humans when we eat the fish. Um, and we're still only just learning about the toxic impact that microfibers have on the environment and humans. And this is kind of what the worrying thing is, is that we still don't understand the full extent of their danger. 
there's been studies linking um, microfibers with problems with infertility, cancer, and various other awful um, health problems. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely one thing that um, a lot of people, because of the fact that it's under-researched at the moment because it's such a new problem, I think there's a tendency for people to sort of brush it aside, but because we don't, we don't yet know it's it's really important that we we take stock of that and think hold on a minute would i want to be giving that to a child and i think as well it's like that again with um it's that like out of sight out of mind like especially with micro plastics like we can't see them someone once explained to me that with the um recent explosion of our awareness of like the plastic polluting the environment it's almost like a um kind of there's a modern obsession with cleanliness with being clean and having things looking beautiful and attractive and they thought that our obsession with plastics polluting the environment was really just taking away from the bigger picture of climate change which is you know not that you want one or the other but if you were going to you'd want to mitigate climate change before you'd want to mitigate um, plastic pollution and because we can't see the microfibers polluting our beautiful pristine beaches it's hard to really be so shocked and disgusted by it mm. you think about the sheer amount that these fibers are like creating into like um like tons hundreds of tons into the ocean and that the impact because they're so small they're so easily ingestible and yeah it's absolutely terrifying um, and another problem is with the end of life with clothing. So as we kind of said, with this cheap clothing where a new crop top can cost you $5.99 or a pair of jeans $10.99, and these clothes, as I said, aren't made to last. So we kind of have this view of clothing being disposable, whereas I'm sure like um, your grandma or an older person might have said to you once, like, oh, when I was your age, we just sewed up the hole in the elbow of my jumper, like, we didn't throw it away, like they would sew up socks. Whereas we, like in the past, I guess, couple of decades, have this view of just clothes being something we can just dispose of. And this means that um, so much clothes are just being sent to landfill or a huge amount of clothes are being sent to charity shops. And of course, like this is good in a sense, but a lot of these clothes are being exported to kind of East Asian and African countries where these countries are unable to deal with the waste and it's also led to a decline in their local textile industry. So again, it's problematic. And the charity shops as well are overloaded. I mean, they've got a limited number of things that they can sell and many of them aren't really resellable. Like I've seen loads recently. I think so many people have had clear outs during the lockdown period and like go through all my things and work out what I actually need and what I actually wear. I've seen so many people just leaving bags outside of charity shops in, in the pouring rain when it's closed at night. It's like almost just dumping rubbish at the shop like and in the UK alone, it's estimated that £140 million worth of clothing goes to landfill every year. Um, and some of these fabrics and clothes have never even been worn. So, I mean, this is all quite overwhelming when you start to really get the bigger picture of the impact that fashion is having on the environment. Like All of these things together on the scale that we are producing clothes in our current society. Well, it really makes me start to rethink about all the things in my past that I've bought just because I had a party to go to or I just wanted to cheer myself up. So I was like, I'll treat myself with like some new earrings in Primark. Retail um, therapy. 
retail therapy like it's a thing isn't it um so it's yeah you really start to question it but I guess equally importantly is the human rights impact that this is having Mel you can tell me more I'm interested to hear Let's start where these human rights um, issues in the fast fashion industry begin. So because the fast fashion industry churns out seasonal designs and collections, there's obviously a huge demand for speedy clothes making. You've maybe heard of sweatshops. Um, This is basically where all of the clothes are being made and factory workers are required to work extremely long hours um, all days around the year um, with no extra money for what they do. And the main problem around this is that fashion brands are not being socially responsible. So whilst they might be disconnected being in the UK or in generally the West, you can um, summarise it as being an exploitation of workers occurring in mainly developing nations where the factory work is being outsourced to on the basis that the, the fashion brands can source cheaper labour Um, And the problem is that the developing nations where all of the fashion um, sort of production work is outsourced to do not have labour laws or the labour laws are poorly enforced means that there can't be any collective action or collective bargaining and people just cannot stand up for their rights. The other problem is that there's a huge cycle of poverty. So this essentially means that companies can profit off the sheer need to work where they could they can get away with or have been able to get away with offering them extremely low salaries in order to make them really large profits so who makes our clothes and whose rights are affected i found some articles on sos letters from people in a chinese prison there were women who inserted an sos letter into some trousers which a lady found and they basically were saying, we are prisoners in Xiangnan jail in Hubei in China. For a long time, we have been producing clothes for export. We work for 15 hours each day. What we eat is even worse than food for pigs and dogs. The work we do is similar to that of oxes and horses. We urge the international community to denounce China for this inhumane act. So what constitutes this forced labour? It doesn't have to be prison work. It can be any work that someone does against their will and under the threat of violence or punishment. So in the fast fashion industry, this is rife. Um, In a study carried out by the Centre for Research on Multinational Corporations, they found in the South Indian textile industry that um, the mills they investigated made the workers work long hours and in a very demanding working environment. That's 60 hours a week or more all year round. They couldn't refuse, these workers couldn't refuse overtime or night shifts and the supervisors would humiliate the workers and press them into a fast pace of work. That's really so awful. And I've been reading recently in the news about um, lots of brands um, like kind of like Nike, Uniqlo, all these massive brands have been linked with the um, Uyghur concentration camps in the Muslim concentration camps in China. Yeah, this is kind of this isn't an archaic thing of this slave labor like this is ongoing with brands that claim to have like good credentials and and that we're buying into it's mm-hmm. it's it's just it's really scary thinking that we're paying for people to undertake slave labor 
Just chiming in here many weeks after we recorded this episode to say that Marks and Spencer has publicly announced its formal commitment to cut all ties with suppliers implicated in the Uyghur forced labour and to ban any sourcing from the Uyghur region. Um, And this coalition to end Uyghur forced labour is really important and has been endorsed by 300 or more human rights and civil society organisations on the back of the fact that one in five cotton products sold globally are pretty likely to have been tainted with Uyghur forced labour. Um, so this is a huge step um, for Marks & Spencer to have taken and we can only hope that other major retailers make a similar move. Also, we can look at the fast fashion industry and its reputation with child labour. So um, the International Labour Organization estimates that 11% of children around the world are in labour. Um, this means that they are, of course, deprived of the right to education or the right to go to school. Um, many of this 11% of children work in the fast fashion industry, um, working, of course, long hours, as we say, to satisfy the c- consumer demand. Um, and of course, we've got the cycle of poverty um, trap again, because children are coming from the poorest parts of the world and they accept work for extremely low wages and therefore can be very easily exploited. So families may need children to work instead of them going to school to get an education and in the end means that they have to give up the possibility of getting a better job. Um, I thought I'd look at why children are targeted for the fast fashion industry Mm -hmm. because I think this is quite interesting Um, in the stage one of the supply chain as Pippa was saying about with the cotton picking on the cotton plantations children are really useful in a really horrible sense because they have small fingers and they're less likely to damage the cotton crop of course secondly to this they're cheaper they accept a lower rate of pay and they're they're not skilled workers so they they can't ask for a higher rate of pay and Sophie Over the global campaign coordinator of Stop Child Labour Coalition said they are low-skilled workers without a voice and therefore they're easy to target. They're not just easy to target as children their their families are also easy to target so other studies have been done around this this problem where parents have been put under pressure and persuaded to send their daughters to spinning mills um, promising them that they'll pay their child well pay the family well give them a comfortable accommodation good meals etc etc but realistically they're not doing this they are working under appalling conditions and Mm -hmm. it has been said to amount to modern day slavery um, so I thought just just we'll we'll come back to this, of course, at the end, but really be careful if your clothes are coming from Egypt, Uzbekistan, Pakistan, Black, Bangladesh, China, India and Thailand, because the research from Centre of Research on Multinational Corporations reported that 60 percent of workers in these countries were under 18. That's huge, especially when you think that the majority of clothes do come from these countries. So. Another problem with is in the cosmetic industry. So children in mines in particularly eastern Indian states are, are mining for mica, 
which is essentially used in lots and lots and lots of makeup products. It's the sort of shiny stuff that makes things shiny, um, as I understand it. And the Indian government knew that this wasn't okay. So they imposed really strict regulations on the mining, which in turn has meant that these mines are now run illicitly and illegally and they can use children because it's easier to get away with. So children as young as five are going down into the mines. There's a whole um, mini documentary done by Refinery29, giving lots of information about the risk of death in the mines, that they have no other alternative, respiratory illnesses, broken bones, and just really highlighted the sort of desperation they were in. Although there is, there are, there are some hope. Is some hope. Some of the girls and children have been setting up children's parliaments in their villages, and in the video it showed them discussing how they would be able to talk to the the mining operators. And I thought this was amazing because obviously they're learning how to empower themselves. That's so interesting. Though I've literally never heard about that specific product. Yeah, it will be in most products apart from lush products so because they use synthetic mica so that's definitely a positive that's so good yeah lush is just such a great brand yeah treat yourself to a bath bomb that's my favorite thing yeah (laughs) for sure for sure there's often accreditations on the packets uh, as there are with coffee like fair trade um symbols and stuff so you Mm. can obviously know when when you're using the right product yeah that's a good thing to point out i mean it's hard isn't it because it's like oh be wary looking for a proper accreditation that says this is a sustainably sourced not involving child labor product yeah exactly we can also look at women in the fast fashion industry so huge amounts of discrimination occur and yeah they're in the garment factories day in day out enduring sexual violence sexual harassment intimidation all carried out by male management uh, supervisors and male co-workers a non-representative survey undertaken in Bangalore found that 14% of female garment workers have been sexually harassed or raped 60% of them intimidated or threatened with violence and 40 to 50% of had experienced humiliation and verbal abuse which at the very least is just demoralizing demotivating and yet they can't turn back on they can't turn back on the yeah because as you said before it's like a poverty trap where many of us have the luxury of backup plans and but for lots of people if it's that or you can't afford food you like you know a place to live and that's highlights why we want to do this podcast because we want to encourage people to learn more but also to be a voice for people that And I mean, I'm not saying that we're like the one voice for these people, but we're just contributing to the conversation and trying to make these stories heard so that it's not just, oh, forget about it because it's a nice lip gloss. Exactly. Or it's a nice pair of jeans from Gap Mm -hmm. or H&M, which are um, huge contenders in this discriminatory uh, fast fashion world. Um, Their factories have been known and reported in on many occasions to fire pregnant women or deny them their right to maternity leave they often physically abuse women who threaten to join uh, labor unions and so much of this sort of goes unreported mm. um, because they're, they're so scared I mean why why would you speak up if you were going to be beaten it's 
We can also look at the minimum and living wages, um, and these are really well protected international rights in many um, core conventions. The minimum and living wage for garment factory workers is almost never upheld. At the very least, people should be given fair wages, equal payment, a decent living, safe and healthy working conditions, and the possibility for rest. Mm. And yet, on average, sweatshops, sweatshop workers earn three, three cents an hour and 94% of factories violated overtime regulations. And without a work contract, you can't enforce your actual working hours. Yeah, definitely. I recently read um, Refinery29 Money Diaries. And if you haven't, I really recommend it's like random people write a diary of what they spend each week. And it's just quite interesting. It's people from all different wages and they just like talk about why they bought what they bought. Uh, and it's often just like people spending way too much money in prep and things like that. Recently, I think it was like in April or something, did um, a money diary following um, a garment worker in Bangladesh on £1,000 a year. And yeah, wow. reading um, about the hours of work this lady did, like with no no time, no free time to be with her children, to do housework, to relax, to do any kind of hobby. If her life was just spent working to make this bare minimum of money so i'd really recommend reading that i'll we'll put it in the show notes so you can have a look hey just coming in again uh just to say that as we know garment workers are already on seriously low wages but the coronavirus has thrown a whole new set of battles for them to face um, because shops have shut down and entire clothes clothing stores have have closed for good which has meant that these clothing brands have had to make cuts and that's like down the supply chain that's meant that garment workers working for major fashion brands are going hungry or taking out loans to feed their families due to these pay cuts Um, so one in five are reported to have experienced hunger on a daily basis following the 20% decline in average wages in the global garment industry finally we're going to talk about factory conditions Mm. um this is a really important one and a really hard-hitting topic not only have we looked at everything on on the individual level but factory conditions affect everybody and each brand is working with hundreds if not thousands of factories at a given time so Mm. it's a really fundamental thing to be making sure is done right and yet we have the the huge catastrophe that was Rana Plaza um, in Dhaka, Bangladesh. I'm sure everyone remembers this. Um, So this was seven years ago um, on the 24th of April, and it was a disaster that affected the second largest clothing manufacturer um, in the world. It was a large eight-story factory which had been deemed structurally unfit and unsafe, and 1,134 workers died and 2,500 at least were permanently disfigured or injured. We, we will post YouTube documentaries and um, statements about the, the situation if, if yeah. anybody would like to read more. Um, the, it, there were positive benefits that came out of this awful situation in the sense that the Alliance for Bangladesh Workers' Safety 
which was actually composed of mostly US brands such as Gap, Walmart and Target, formed an alliance in order to make sure that people were more safe while they worked and also an accord on fire and building safety in Bangladesh was created which is a legally binding agreement signed by 220 mainly European companies and trade unions which seeks to enforce um, fire safety standards Um, and it actually requires factory inspections and reports and there's publicly available remedies for failure which really helps to ensure transparency and make brands accountable for the safety conditions. Aruna Kashyap, who is the Senior Counsel for the Women's Rights Division of, the, of Human Rights Watch, um, describes this accord as a game changer because it combines transparency with giving a voice to workers and enforcing safety requirements. And it really puts brands' money behind supporting mm-hmm. the workers. And just a little quick snapshot, we've got models and why models are important to the story is because females and male models are some of the the most important actors in our fashion business in selling our clothes to us. So they also have the right to privacy, freedom of expression, freedom of association, labour rights, um, but often are exploited. And there's many cases of human trafficking, backstage photography, where photos of models have ended up on pornographic websites sites but good news there is a model alliance um not-for-profit or labor organization working with u.s models um and they actually came up with a a, a models bill of rights um and i'll post the full document on our website but this means that models are being given the possibility to, to deny or revoke their consent for photographs being posted of them and just generally empowering them, ensuring that there's a sense of professionalism in the industry, which I think is is extremely important as we pull around the world, take inspiration from these people, and they are what make us want to buy the clothes. Mm, that's really interesting. It's definitely a side of a, the fast fashion story that I hadn't really thought about. And I just kind of wanted to draw attention to the fact that obviously unfortunately a lot of these garment factories are exported to countries like you said like Egypt, Uzbekistan, Bangladesh and India Mm. Um, but also that it's also happening in England and I'm sure um, everyone listening has probably heard about the boohoo disaster that happened only during the lockdown period I think in July where inside investigators revealed 75% of the people employed in the factories were being paid under minimum wage as little as three pounds an hour and basically it was slave labor happening in the UK right on our doorsteps in Leicester which I personally found really shocking when I heard about not that it surprised me that Boohoo was involved in such kind of CD production but that it was happening in the UK because you kind of assume that there would be stronger legislation in place to prevent this from happening if you think if this is what's happening in England what could be happening happening elsewhere yeah and also because it was so sort of mischievous how they thought they were getting away with this their bosses were going to be taking home bonuses of of 150 million pounds and Mm -hmm. they were churning out all of these great designs I think you were telling me about the eat-in and while you're in lockdown outfits which how would they have planned for an outfit like that unless 
So that means that production's happening when nobody's meant to be working because there's a pandemic and we're in lockdown, exactly. And I think it's also important to kind of point out, I mean, it's pretty obvious, but it's like behind these brands that are exploiting thousands of people is often someone really, really rich, like the Kamani family behind Boohoo or Philip Green behind Topshop. The only reason these people can become so rich is by exploiting others and it's really important that we're aware of who these people are and that more like publicly we kind of address who they are and like why are they doing this and speak to them personally as the boss of a company. I completely agree. This ties in nicely to how we're going to conclude our episode and look at how you can help. So let's go back to Lily Cole's quote where she says, realise the political power of your money and spend it with the brands you know you are treat- who are treating their workers and the environment in the best possible way. So since we have given you the lowdown on just how much of an impact what we wear has on the environment and on people, we'd like to leave you with some thoughts and suggestions from us at Earthrights. So something really interesting is the Transparency Pledge, which is a great platform demanding that um, there's a common minimum standard for supply chain disclosures by getting companies to publish standardised meaningful information on their supply chain. And there's also Fashion Revolution, another great organisation campaigning for greater transparency. Um, And they actually have a review of 250 of the world's top fashion brands, ranking them for their environmental and human rights and ethical um, transparency. So this is a really amazing platform. If you kind of want to have more knowledge of where you're putting your money and who you're investing in. So we'll link that in the um, show notes. And also earlier this month, ASOS called for clothing brands that they stock on their websites to reveal their supply chains. And this was all triggered by the kind of boohoo scandal. So this is a really great step in the right direction. But there's still massive companies like Walmart, Zara, Mango, Urban Outfitters, Forever 21, who still don't publicly disclose which factories produce their branded clothes. So just food for thought on on that. I think part of this whole transparency project boils down to labelling as well. Conscientious labelling can highlight which brands have gone above and beyond to protect workers, the planet and animals uh, and um, research that was actually conducted by Selfridges revealed that 72% of customers would like more sustainability information to be available and many of these people wanted third party authentication so that they could trust the label more definitely so what can you do because it's obviously quite a monumental problem and we're not going to be able to fix it on our own but fundamentally we can all try to buy less like when we're tired or a bit hungover and watching tv and we're thinking about buying a new top shop dress think about how much do you really need it do you have other items in your wardrobe that are similar that you could use instead how often are you going to wear it and just really question do you need that product um, and also look for fair trade accreditations, like Mel said. So look for um, eco standards that do state the ethics of a brand. There's an app called Good On You that's really good for this. Um, again, we'll link it below. Um, and also charity shopping, really a simple a simple solution to kind of getting your quick fix out of when you want a piece of new clothing just go to a charity shop and like we mentioned before kind of the problem with charity shops being dumped with unwanted clothes but someone else's rubbish could be your new like 
your new favorite thing so there's really like a joy in charity shopping if you have the time and the luxury of being able to go to a shops because i completely understand that that's not an option for everyone but if it is available to you i really recommend to just go out on your own spend some time looking in some charity shops try on some bits or take a few things home to try on and like you know you're supporting a charity recycling and reusing clothes and not supporting a brand that you don't morally agree with we're also going to just quickly touch on some confusions that people have um, when they see the words sustainability and ethical pop up Um, Mm. so obviously we're now having these options to shop more sustainably and ethically but are they are they just buzzwords and um how how do we get around this yeah like as mel said more and more consumers uh, are wanting these kind of green credentials from the clothes they buy but brands like h&m are kind of using and abusing this with their environmentally conscious collection whatever that really means Um, But the definition of sustainability is the ability to be maintained at a certain level or rate. So on the scale of H&M's production, can anything they produce really be sustainable? They might market it as being from vegan leather or ethically produced. But if you're producing one million pieces of that clothing, then you're not maintaining production at a certain level. You're increasing production but then, you know, companies are greenwashing and prying on the knowledge that the public is wanting more understanding of where we, where our products come from. So just always we should be critical and aware of the intent of a lot of these brands. So say we move away from these kind of fast fashion brands like H&M and acknowledge the fact that producing something on the scale of their production line is never going to be sustainable. And we start looking at more sustainable brands. Often they are more expensive, of course, because you're paying a fair price for the production, the clothing, the trade, the designer. But not everyone has the money to spend on on these kind of sustainable clothes. And I think it just risks becoming like a class issue. Or So we really just want to highlight that the most sustainable piece of clothing is the one you already have in your wardrobe. Share with your friends, charity shop if you have that luxury, mend clothes if you have the time and the skill, and maybe even try making your own clothes. I mean, I'm not skilled enough to be able to do that, but, um, and it's something it could be fun to learn how to do. Well, thank you so much for listening all the way to the end, and that's all we have time for for today. If you are interested or concerned by any of the issues raised during this podcast, then please get in touch at contact at earthrights.co.uk or visit our website www.earthrights.co.uk. You can find full recordings of all of the episodes on most podcast platforms or on the Earthrights website, referenced in the show notes. We host a blog on there too, as well as recommendations and other information. Please also join in on the journey by following our Twitter and Instagram accounts at earthrights underscore. If you would like to be involved in an episode of the Earthrights podcast, then please also get in touch. This Earthrights podcast was hosted, produced and edited by us. Music and sounds were specially made for Earthrights by the Mowgli Wild Boys, who are currently recording a new LP at Circuit Studios in Nottingham. Please follow their Instagram and Facebook at Mowgli Wild Boys.